Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril McAleco. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. If the Bucks County Beacon is going to be here for the long haul and save the area from becoming a news desert where extremism and authoritarianism flourishes, we need the community to invest in our independent media project so that we can continue to produce this podcast and publish news, analysis, and progressive opinion daily on our website. Go to buckscountybeacon.com support the beacon and become a monthly sustainer today. Julie Sook is professor of law at Fordham University School of Law and is a leading expert on gender and constitutional law in the United States and around the world. In 2020, she published We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, which was the first book to chronicle and assess the 21st century revival of the Equal Rights Amendment. Today, we talk about our new book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. Hi, Julie. Welcome to The Signal. Hi, Cyril. Thanks so much for having me. Your latest book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It, takes us in its first page to Santiago, Chile in 2019, at the scene of women-led protests outside of the country's Supreme Court, with lyrics of a song they sang in what became an international feminist anthem, A Rapist in Your Path. Why was this moment so significant for you and within the broader context of your book that you decided to start it off there? Well, 2019 was really an interesting time, not only for Chile, but for feminists around the world. In Chile, the feminists were just one movement in a larger social movement uh, that criticized many things that were wrong with existing power structures within government that led to various disadvantages, not only for women, but for other disadvantaged classes in Chilean society. And that that series of protests, including the feminist protest, led to a process that is still going on in Chile of trying to write a new constitution for the country. That process has been one that has been quite dramatic because the first constitution that was written Uh, as a result of these social protests and the parliamentary response to that was actually rejected by the electorate. uh, And now they're in a new process of trying again. Uh, But one uh, requirement that has held constant, whether it's the left wing writing the constitution or uh, the center right writing the constitution, uh, one thing that's held constant is that they've decided that women must always be equally represented at the table. I didn't know that when I started writing the book because we're still in it uh, in Chile. Uh, And the book is not just about Chile or not even primarily about Chile. Uh, In in some ways, it's really a look at uh, the developments of feminist constitutionalism and not just constitutionalism, just efforts by feminists to dismantle patriarchy in law in all of its various forms uh, in the United States and in many other places around the world, historically into the present moment. And the point that I want to make in this book is that we often 
reason in the law as though the problem that we're trying to get rid of is hatred of women, the discrimination against women. And I want to show how the efforts to get rid of discrimination against women have forgotten about another important problem that's related to, but not the same as hatred of women, which is a certain expectation that women sacrifice and give to the larger society in, with regard to their reproductive and care work uh, in ways that are underappreciated and undervalued uh, and systemically so. And when and why did you decide to start writing this book? I think I probably, not known to me, started writing the book. So I guess there was no decision made, but I must have started writing it in the 1990s when I was still a student. And it was because I witnessed the movements in European countries to entrench in their constitutions a specific authorization to eradicate disadvantages that exist for women in politics and economic power, specifically in almost all constitutions around the world, including ours, we have a guarantee of equality, equal protection of the laws. And in many places, that has meant that the law cannot treat women or disadvantaged races specially uh, in order to overcome their disadvantage. And many European countries, including France and Germany and Italy, had struggles about that problem in the 1990s, which culminated in feminist movements advocating for gender parity uh, and making gender parity something that was explicitly allowed, if not required, under the constitutional scheme. And I found that really fascinating because there's always been this tension between what it really means to have equality under a legal system. Does everybody have to be treated roughly the same? Or is there a possibility for understanding historically all of the ways in which our collective decisions around the law or around the way that we um, allocate our resources economically, all those decisions, how do they extract extra work from some people or disadvantage or uh, erase the contributions of some people in society? And how should the law deal with that while trying to treat everyone equally? I mean, the idea, you know, or the, the myth of American exceptionalism would suggest that we're the greatest country in the world when it comes to democracy and equality. And for this conversation, having laws that enshrine and protect political and socioeconomic equality between women and men. In your research, did you find this to be true? So actually, um, I know you're supposed to be asking me the questions, but I am curious to know, is that what you thought uh, before reading my book or coming into any conversation about equality or freedom? Uh, do you think that, uh, do you and uh, do you think that many people assume that America is the greatest democracy in the world? I mean, I think that's a that's an ongoing battle that we're seeing, you know, still play out right now. And you know, that battle has even entered elementary, middle and high schools, um, you know, with these wars on um, teaching history, etc. Personally, I've been skeptical of the idea of American exceptionalism um, for a long time when it when it comes to either, you know, in this case with women's equality or as being some kind of like shining light of you know, democracy and human rights uh, for all the world to look towards um, and to guide, you know, especially given if you look at our history of like foreign policy around the world. Yeah. So I guess just as an addendum to uh, 
your last question, I started the writing this book in the 1990s as all these other countries were adding amendments to their constitutions, moving towards equal power for women, not just equal rights, but equal power for women or gender parity as an organizing principle for a democracy or an economy. The reason that was such a striking idea was that we don't amend the constitution in the United States. And one of the things that's really important to our story, if we almost never change our constitution in the United States, is the failure of the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, uh, that uh, there was an effort that lasted a hundred years to add equal rights uh, without abridgment on the basis of sex to the constitution that failed. Uh, Meanwhile, all these other constitutions around the world were adding, uh, they already had equal rights provisions, but they were adding provisions being more precise uh, about what that really meant with regard to ensuring that women had equal power in the context of gender parity. So that was really astounding to me uh, because in the United States, one thing that is actually quite exceptional about us is that our constitution is the oldest in the world, one of the oldest in the world. Uh, We're one of the few advanced democracies that uh, attempt to get by in our political order uh, with a constitution that was written in the 18th century. And one of the problems, of course, is that it was written when it was assumed uh, that people who are Black, not property holding, and women uh, were not full participants in the political and economic order. Black people were enslaved, and women did not have the legal status of full persons who could own property and vote and do everything that you think of uh, as coming with citizenship or full adult personhood. And uh, this is really interesting because it's not that the Constitution required the exclusion of Black people or women. Uh, but that it designed a set of political institutions uh, around that assumption. And the set of political institutions that were designed were actually, uh, although uh, perhaps very ahead of their time for the 18th century, are somewhat obsolete uh, with regard to the fear of too much democracy, with regard to uh, how our institutions were actually set up. Uh, So uh, in in many ways, the institutions that we have entrench power. And one of the dynamics that I look at in After Misogyny is the problem of over-empowerment as the way that we should consider what misogyny really is, not hatred of women, but over-empowerment of men uh, or over-entitlement of the society to women's sacrifices, uh, which then feeds into over-empowerment. And I think the idea of over-empowerment is very closely connected to institutions that entrench the power of those who already have it. And we can apply that also to legal institutions that keep patriarchy going. Uh, And they keep patriarchy going even after we we might have laws or even a constitution uh, that says that there's equality for all persons. I mean, can can you define um, patriarchy for listeners and, you know, how there's this kind of how patriarchy and misogyny as you're defining it and how is it how it's expressed uh, through the law just benefit each other? Sure. So patriarchy as a legal system, I think uh, it operates as a cultural or social system. So I want to be very specific about what I mean when I talk about patriarchy as a legal system. And this is the system that exists when 
the uh, American Republic is founded in most of the legal systems that are within uh, the states. Uh, and th- that's specifically that not everybody is is a full legal person, uh, is not a full person under the law. And specifically, women are excluded from legal personhood. They can't own property. If they get married, they can't own property. If they happen to work outside the home, uh, they can't, they don't officially own their own earnings. Uh, Furthermore, they are excluded by law uh, from many gainful occupations. And uh, all of these legal exclusions are premised not so much on the hatred of women, but on the expectation that because of women's reproductive capabilities, uh, their proper role is to reproduce both biologically and socially. So in addition to getting pregnant and bearing the children physically and biologically, then uh, that sort of leads naturally to women's role as primary caregiver, caregiver and raiser of children and uh, with many responsibilities with regard to care within the home. Uh, Sometimes that's known as the separate spheres tradition, but it's that set of legal arrangements that is assumed when uh, the Supreme Court says in 1873, in a famous case called Bradwell versus the state of Illinois, the Supreme Court says that the state of Illinois is perfectly justified in excluding women from the legal profession. Women can't be lawyers uh, because women have no legal personhood. If your lawyer were to uh, commit malpractice, for example, you would not be able to sue a woman because a woman had no legal personhood, could not sue or be sued under the law. Uh, so there's, it's not just in Bradwell, uh, but many other decisions, or even what was the justification? Many people opposed women voting for a very long time. Women advocated for the vote for uh, like a century, nearly a century before they finally had that added to the Constitution in 1920 in the United States. And uh, the justification for excluding women from the vote also was uh, that their primary role was as caregiver, uh, and therefore you had to have the male head of household representing her interests as well as the interests of the children uh, in the larger society, in the polity, and in economic life. Uh, so that's what I define as patriarchy. This notion uh, that the woman cannot have legal personhood, uh, is excluded from legal personhood uh, because of her reproductive role, both biological and social. Uh, And that's something that I think that legal feminism has tried to dismantle uh, with some limited success for a very long time. You wrote about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how she really tried to take on these, you know, gender roles or norms or expectations um, kind of enshrined in in the law and just kind Mm -hmm. of like social behavior. Can, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it's really fascinating because patriarchy was in many different areas of law and public policy. So just the assumption that the man works and the woman stays home with the kids, even in the way that we design certain social security rules uh, about widowers' benefits, for example. Only widows could get benefits uh, when their spouse died, but widowers couldn't because the law assumed that women didn't work and were in need of that protection and men Uh, did work. And so they wouldn't need the protection if their wives died and so forth. Uh, And it's these gendered expectations that that were ubiquitous in law and public policy that Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought that the law should dismantle uh, if we were going to move towards a world in which we didn't have these gendered expectations of people anymore. 
her strategy was to go after uh, not just the laws that discriminated against women, but also laws that discriminated against men. Like if a, if a law assumed that a man who was actually raising his child did not need protection or support uh, because he, they, the law assumed that he was a, a breadwinner. And so she, she took on a lot of cases like that in which you had a gender role reversal. And I think what led, what um, resulted from those efforts uh, was the notion that if you were going to have gender equality in the law, the law had to treat men and women the same and never make assumptions about their capacities or their roles within the family. And I think one of the limits of that in the United States was that we dismantled patriarchy in the law, but we did not build up a feminist infrastructure. So one way you could think about patriarchy is not just a set of legal rules that say certain things, but a set of legal rules that actually then uh, give rise to uh, certain social arrangements about who, who is actually going to work and who is actually going to take care of kids. Uh, and one thing that happens in the 1970s uh, with the success of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's feminist legal strategy, which was so important, is that uh, women have increased opportunities to be educated and to become lawyers and um, a lot of the legal rules of patriarchy fall away. At the same time, the expectation, if you're going to have a society where children are born and raised, uh, the expectation, the infrastructure of care is not replaced. We don't have laws that now say, since women are uh, working, uh, we're going to have public daycare. Since women and men are both breadwinners, we're going to have a different set of assumptions about what the education and care system is doing. We, we didn't build up that infrastructure. And when you don't build up that infrastructure, dismantling patriarchy is not as helpful as people think it's going to be in actually restructuring the gender relationships and the gender roles that people occupy. I mean, would one possible solution be that the state compensate either women or men for childcare? Yes, absolutely. And that is the direction that many other countries went in, even though they started by compensating women only first. A very important influence for Justice Ginsburg, and it's ironic, she ended up going to Sweden in the 1960s to do research. And she ended up doing research, not necessarily on feminism. She went there to do research on Swedish civil procedure. And she went there in part because of sexism in America. She couldn't get a job at a law firm, even though she was a top graduate from a top law school. So she took a research job to write a book about civil procedure in Sweden. So she went over there. But it so happened that Sweden was in the midst of a huge debate about whether or not gender expectations and gender stereotypes and gender roles were undermining not only women, but also men, that somehow men were also harmed by the expectation that they be manly and make money and support the family, which meant that it took them out of caregiving roles. You know, So men had fewer opportunities to be full persons by those gendered expectations, and so did women. But interestingly, in Sweden, the number one solution was not anti-discrimination law. Right. The number one solution in the United States was just treat men and women the same for all legal purposes. In Sweden, it was actually quite different. It was, OK, so we're going to allow women the opportunity to work. But if we're going to do that, we're going to have to like deal with the gap that's left in terms of who's raising the kids. Uh, so there's huge 
investments in childcare and eventually the Swedish model of parental leave, which is paid parental leave for both parents uh, and much for a much longer period than uh, we can ever imagine in the United States under the, poly- the very paltry policies that we have in some states and provided by some employers for parental leave. Uh, an infrastructure gets built uh, in places like Sweden. And not only Sweden, if you, if you go farther back to the moments after World War One and World War II in continental Europe and countries like France and Germany, there, of course, it's a much more gendered model uh, where they support mothers. And they support mothers uh, in part after the experience of war because women had to step up and do play both roles, both gender roles. They had to work as well as raise their kids while the men were off at war. Europe experienced unbelievable devastation uh, as compared to the United States with regard to the number of men wiped out, by, especially by World War I. Uh, and I think that led uh, in many European countries to a social welfare state model in which uh, the dual roles of women as mothers as well as workers uh, was supported at least in some countries like France. And It's that model in those countries, they were slower than Sweden, but eventually they came to the conclusion that both men and women uh, should be supported in both their caregiving and breadwinning roles. But I, I think if you look at the journey that has taken place in many countries around the world, not all, but many countries that we like to compare ourselves to as a democracy, it's it's not enough just to say that the law stops discriminating or stops oppressing women or stops hating women. It's equally important uh, for the law uh, to make it possible to create policies that reallocate those gender roles and properly value whatever sacrifices women in particular make uh, in order for the public good of childbearing and raising the next generation. What you're describing, does that is that more of like a proactive approach towards justice or, or, or the difference between like non-discrimination or inequality and justice? Yeah. So I think justice is a, a word that has so many meanings, but I think I would modify that by calling it distributive justice, uh, specifically that we tend to invisibilize and undervalue uh, the contributions that women make to the common good because they stay pregnant, have children, and raise children. Uh, I think that our culture makes that seem like something that's both natural and voluntary for women. And as a result, uh, when uh, you see a lot of gaps, for example, like the gender pay gap, and many economists who've studied it have said that the, the gap between women and men is almost entirely explained by motherhood. If you compare not women who are not mothers to men, regardless of their parental status, that gender gap gets much more negligible. And I think when people see that, they say it's because uh, it's kind of natural and women are choosing Uh, to be mothers, uh, instead of thinking about all the ways in which our economic and political institutions uh, just expect it. And I think one um, stark area in which this has become really clear is the way that we have dealt with abortion in the United States. So as you know, the Supreme Court decided Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health last year, And it ended a legal regime by which it was assumed that women had a right to abortion under Roe v. Wade in the United States. 
under Roe in the United States uh, always said that women's right to abortion was a right to privacy. I think that's actually the wrong framing. Uh, if you think about why it's wrong to deprive women of their right to abortion, uh, it's not so much because the decision to have a child is entirely private. In many other countries, the decision to have a child implicates a lot of other people and the society that you live in. The society benefits from the decisions women make uh, to bear children and to educate them. They're putting in uh, something of great public and economic and social value. And I think that's something that we miss. The problem with banning abortion is that it actually extracts the labor of motherhood from so many women, not that it vi violates their uh, privacy. Uh, it's an extraction uh, of that work. And I think it's really important that we see that uh, as we reason through what's actually wrong with banning abortion, uh, and then how we reason through what it means to actually have a right to equality in a democratic society that does nothing to um, alleviate the risks of motherhood, that does nothing to uh, support or compel paid parental leave or risks to, that pregnant workers face in the workplace. Um, it's only very recently, uh, just um, last year, that we got a law passed that would require the accommodation of pregnant workers. The Dobbs decision, I mean, you know, obviously, if I'm interpreting it right, I mean, that's kind of like a, you know, it's like the first shot and and, and resurrecting this uh, legal patriarchy and, and misogyny that you're talking about. And I, I feel like, we're, you know, Republicans aren't stopping there. I mean, there's efforts to ban no default divorces or even restrict access to birth control, which, you know, essentially would be kind of you know, at least metaphorically, like constructing cages for women, right, in the country. Yeah. So what can be done? What are the solutions to efforts like that? And then just kind of like more, more structural kind of solutions to a lot of the biases that are kind of like ingrained within the U.S. legal and political system. I think that my book was a response to folks who think that non-discrimination is the most important principle with regard to sex equality or gender equality and the law. And I actually think that non-discrimination is only marginally important. It's not, the, it's not where I would start. And you mentioned, uh, it's interesting that you said Republicans are <laughs> trying to do X, Y, and Z. And, uh, and I think um, you say that because it's really, you're, we're seeing a lot of state legislatures uh, largely controlled by Republicans that are doing the very restrictive abortion bans at six weeks or even moment of conception that are uh, talking about doing other things that would essentially extract more reproductive, involuntary motherhood and reproductive labor from women. And I'd, I think we tend in our political culture to say, oh, that's misogyny and um, they are women haters and they should be stopped, etc. To my mind, the solution is not to think in terms of hatred, but in terms of what are the political structures that empower people who are so willing to extract uh, and if you look at those political structures, the state legislatures, or even um, why has it been so hard 
uh, for Congress uh, to get the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act passed. I think we actually have to dig deeper and look at the way that our political structures entrench the power of those who are so inclined towards the over-entitlement of society at women's expense or the over-empowerment uh, of men. And so, uh, and digging deeper means instead of focusing on woman hatred or discrimination, uh, focus on the political structures that empower the mechanisms of unjust enrichment of both society at women's expense and unjust enrichment of men at women's uh, expense, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, reproductive work. And, that, and that's where I think, I mean, it's kind of roundabout. That's where I think the Constitution matters, not because we need the Constitution to say women are equal, although that would be nice too. Uh, and I've written an earlier book and many articles about that, but that the Constitution is the primary mechanism by which we allocate who exercises power and and the way that we've done that has contributed not only to the problem of misogyny, but to other problems of over-entitlement and over-empowerment that go beyond gender relations in our politics. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, like, you know, some, uh, a lot of the problems are, are bipartisan. <laughs> I think that, you know, you can't right. say, you, I, I feel like one party, obviously, I think the Republican Party it just historically has had kind of, uh, um, ha- have promoted and championed um, policies that to the detriment of women and their autonomy, you know, and I, and I think the you know the media obviously can kind of like do a better job of kind of reporting and and writing on these issues. I, you were talking about earlier, you know, how like other countries have kind of like have addressed this and and gone beyond just non discrimination. I'm baffled by why there's like this lack of not only political will, but even like political imagination that pushing through these policies can even be possible in our country. Yeah. So one of the mechanisms that I write about in After Misogyny is the use of more mechanisms of direct democracy in some of the countries that have made surprising strides with regard to dismantling misogyny. So uh, a great example is Ireland. Ireland had a constitutional provision banning abortion uh, in the 1980s. And there was a very interesting evolution by which Ireland uh, then liberalized abortion through a constitutional amendment process in 2018. Uh, And a very important part of the story, and there's an ongoing process in Ireland around getting a gender equality provision and also rewriting an older provision Uh, That's very patriarchal. That says, you know, by her work in the home, women give the state a value. And so it's known as the woman in the home clause. Uh, What's been really interesting in Ireland is not just the fact that they're moving in a direction that's more equal and dismantling patriarchy. What's interesting is how they're doing it. And it's because they've been innovative by creating citizens' assemblies to deliberate about the abortion issue and citizens' assemblies to deliberate about the gender equality provision in the constitution or to deliberate about the meaning of the woman in the home clause written in 1937. But, you know, how do we dismantle that and replace it with something uh, more nuanced uh, that understands the value that both men and women give with regard to care? 
uh, within our society. But I think the process has been one that's more democratic in the sense that it's not just the people who already hold power in Congress and state legislatures who are changing what the Constitution does. The people who hold power have created citizens' assemblies to listen to the people uh, about uh, and to get the people to come to uh, agreement, consensus, compromise uh, with regard to their different worldviews on socially divisive issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, and uh, care. In Ireland, um, the, and the abortion issue is almost as divisive as it is here? Um, I think it's hard to tell because I actually think that even in the United States, there's much more agreement about abortion than we think there is. Uh, I think, and, and what they found out by doing the citizens' assemblies and in Ireland on abortion, uh, and what uh, we know, but we don't have a full picture, we have some polls and surveys and research uh, being done on the social science side. Uh, but we, what we do know is that there's actually a very small number of people in the United States, as well as in Ireland, who believe that all abortions should be legal all the time, <laughs> under all circumstances. And there's a very small number of people, very small minority, who believe that all abortions, no matter what the circumstances, should be illegal. Almost the entire population is somewhere in between, and a very large majority, we found out, although we didn't really know uh, until the citizens' assemblies. But one thing you find out by actually getting people to talk to each other is that in many situations, we could call them tragic situations of pregnancy, where people have a pregnancy that's actually a real threat, uh, a serious threat to a woman's health, a pregnant woman's health. Uh, or to their life, or even a situation where there's uh, a condition that afflicts the fetus, so they're, they're actually not going to survive more than a few minutes after birth. Uh, in a lot of those situations, uh, there's actually a tremendous amount of agreement, even though there isn't absolute agreement on pro-choice or pro-life. Uh, and so I think we need to do the work of figuring out where we could find consensus and compromise on that in the United States. Uh, but I think that unfortunately, we haven't done that work. Uh, there's been a, a culture war uh, organized around abortion. The courts uh, have uh, declared a right that many people think is too broad on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, in the other direction, um, if you start allowing the six or even 12-week bans without properly laying out the exceptions and having a reasonable framework uh, by which those exceptions are actually uh, enforced, um, you're going to have something that's very draconian and bad for women. And, um, and so maybe the solution to that is that you always have to trust women to make the choice. But I think there's a lot of hard work to do to acknowledge uh, a range of reasonable positions with regard to abortion, at least a range of uh, reasonable moral uh, positions. And, um, and I think that we haven't had the political and legal mechanisms working uh, to encourage that dialogue within a very divided and diverse society. And finally, you know, before people go out and buy and hopefully read your book, yes. and they're waiting for um, to, you know, drop in their mailbox, um, you know, what, what else can folks do um, in the meantime and afterwards to kind of to advocate, you know, for more just laws? What else can they do to kind of 
create what we were just talking about, these kinds of like mechanisms where we're, we're, we're having like, you know, assemblies or, or town halls um, to get people together to kind of, and hopefully in a, in a civil way, um, you know, try to find some common ground and, and, and some, some kind of goals that benefit women's equality, equal justice, et cetera, in the future. Well, I think right now, and particularly this has been clear with regard to abortion, I think getting involved at the local and state level or being informed, a lot of a lot of people don't even know. Um, there was this little quiz, I think, that was given at my son's school last week. It was like a civics quiz. But a lot of kids don't know who their member of Congress is. A lot of kids certainly don't know who their state legislators are. And But if they did know, uh, it's... Uh, state legislators are pretty local. It's very possible to meet and talk to your state legislator. And uh, and certainly in many states, uh, there are ballot initiatives around these issues sometimes, particularly with abortion. What's been so interesting after Dobbs is that in many states and uh, in some cases that we've had surprising outcomes where people get involved at a local level. And it turns out that a place that you thought was really against abortion, people are showing up uh, and voting uh, against restricting abortion or voting in favor of protecting, at least to some limited degree, uh, some reproductive freedom. Uh, and you're seeing that in state referendums or uh, movements to amend state constitutions. Uh, and I think that's been a real trend uh, since the Dobbs decision. Uh, so I, I think it is really important, especially now, uh, for people to, to be more engaged uh, at the local and state level. Uh, including the possibility of changing state constitutions to uh, recognize uh, certain rights that make it more likely that women's contributions in the re reproductive realm will be properly valued. Uh, and I think starting from there, then I think it, it is eventually important for us to think uh, as we educate young people about just going back to what you said earlier in the hour, do we actually live in the greatest democracy in the world or do our 18th century institutions need a renovation? And if we if they do need a renovation, like if we can make the Senate more representative, if we can think about how the filibuster in the Senate blocks legislation that a lot of people in this country actually want, if we can think about how the state legislatures are designing their districts in a way that um, entrench the power of those who already hold it, whether or not they really represent what the people want, uh, and so forth. Like we need to be asking those questions, but those are hard questions to ask because uh, if you once you answer them, you might arrive in a place where you think that we need to actually change some of the political structures that we have in order to ensure that the interests of women and other marginalized groups are better represented. Well, Julie, thanks so much for coming on. Um, please go to your local bookstore, purchase, then read After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. And thanks again, Julie, for your time. Thanks so much for your very thoughtful questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril McAlego, editor-in-chief and host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. The Signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney of Rating Chicken Media. Intro-outro music by Moff et Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission. Music